Fascinating people, fascinating places. G'day and welcome to the Dan Mainwaring Podcast. This is where we talk to and about the famous and the infamous, the celebrated and the obscure, the well-known and the undiscovered. Interviews, articles and discussion from around the globe. Bishop Stortford, the historic market town, tucked away in leafy Hertfordshire and best known for, well, not a great deal. The Romans came, set up camp nearby, but they didn't stick around for long. Then came the Normans in 1066. They spruced up the place with a few castles, the ruins of which are now covered by grass. Over the next thousand years, a couple of monarchs, Charles I and Edward VII, popped by for a visit. And that was about it, really. Until one day, in the autumn of 1990, when 11 strangers appeared on the playground of St. Mary's Roman Catholic School. At the time, Stortford was a typical middle-class, predominantly white, conservative town, where everybody knew everybody through church, the Rotary or rugby clubs. The only traveller of note was the infamous Cecil Rhodes, and he'd left the town a century before to wreak havoc in southern Africa. So when these strangers appeared, they quickly caught everyone's attention. But who were they? Okay, in no particular order, Casimiris, Agnieszka, Monica, Christoph, Hannah and her brother Mikhail, another Mikhail, Wojciech, Martin, Marta and Anna. That was the voice of Tony Wood, and he has a big role to play in this peculiar tale, but we'll come back to him later. Neil Rodriguez, a student at St. Mary's, witnessed the arrival. He was a comparative newcomer to the area himself. When I started getting to know people, you get invited around for people's houses. When that started happening to me, I was like, wow, these people are rich. (laughs) One guy had a cook, he had a quad bike, he had a tennis court. I think Stortford was really a much more affluent area than I was used to. St Mary's was a pretty decent school. There was no one getting knocked up. (laughs) There was no like knife crime or anything like that. It was you had people smoking cigarettes. I think that was kind of about the extent of it. It was a pretty good school in a pretty good area. Would you describe St Mary's School or Bishop Storford as being multicultural or diverse at that time? <laughs> no. <laughs> Any brown or black kid knew each other. <laughs> Me, Harlan, Danny Wilson, and anyone else who's brown or black was related to us <laughs> in the nineties. <90s. laughs> Neil and the rest of us were puzzled by these new arrivals, some wearing brown-rimmed spectacles of the style our parents had worn a generation earlier. Moreover, St. Mary's school had a strict dress code. Parents were strongly encouraged to buy clothes from a particular and fairly expensive store. The blazers, skirt lengths, shades and colours would be updated periodically, so anyone who didn't have the latest variant of the school uniform would stick out like the proverbial sore thumb. The newcomers naturally stood out as their clothing wasn't quite on point. It was something one of those newcomers, Kajik, recalls. We were given old uniforms, and so they didn't always fit. I remember I had two blazers, one which I really liked, which was four times my size, and one which I looked like I was squeezed in like a little penguin. Neil also remembers their dress. When you have an established social set, anybody that's new is considered a novelty. They were really interesting. 
but and I think they weren't threatening you know they were kind of skinny maybe a little bit kind of eccentric I remember them being a little bit like their clothes didn't fit them perfectly they'd been given clothes from the lost and found sort of thing maybe they were a bit trousers were a bit short shirt was a bit old I mean it just makes us sound like utter philistines doesn't it these kids with this profound story turn up to your school and you're like oh wow your trousers are a bit short aren't they but who were these outsiders and what was their remarkable story well let's begin with the obvious question i recently put to two of them kajik and marta so where are you from originally Warsaw. <laughs> <laughs> you're just jealous you're just jealous because your family moved out of warsaw and never went back I know. It's called emigrating to a better place, sweetie. My dad's family is actually from which where Kaz is from, so that's a, it's a small world. They were all from Poland, but despite a shared nationality and appearing to the locals to be a cohesive group, they were anything but. In fact, many of them had never met each other before that fateful day, as Marta explains. To make things maybe even worse, we didn't really know each other very well because I'd known Kajik as long as everybody else did because I'd met him probably a day before. We didn't really know each other very well and yet we were always grouped together. Now bear in mind, though the Berlin Wall had come down, East Germany was still a separate state at this point. The USSR and Yugoslavia were still on the map, while Nelson Mandela had just been released from prison in what was still apartheid South Africa. Suffice to say, this was the tail end of the Cold War era. So having 11 kids, barely known to one another, from an Eastern Bloc country, suddenly popping up in your backyard was pretty weird, to say the least. But before we get to the Hollywood thriller part of the story, Kaji Kamata will explain a little bit about their backstories to this point. So the only aspect of this story that isn't weird is the fact that you all came from Poland, a predominantly Catholic country, and you ended up in a Catholic school. But with that having been said, when you were growing up, and even up until almost this point, Poland was also a communist country. So in terms of Catholicism, was that something that was swept under the rug and in dark corners? Or was it pretty open in Poland and most people treated communism as something of a joke? Most people would have been Catholic, and it wasn't really hidden at all. As for communism, I mean, it existed. It was that the government was communist, and pretty much everybody else wasn't. Now, I'm sure, of course, there were people who were part of the Communist Party and who were all involved in it, but I didn't personally know any. You kind of learned to be a little bit of a dissident starting from a very young age because you would hear something on the news or you would be told piece, you know, piece of information and then you'd have to kind of read between the lines and figure what was really, really being said. Political comedy on TV, which was actually pretty, pretty popular. It was very clever how they went, you know, censorship and, and kind of went around all those restrictions. So after it was John Paul II and martial law, people were just disenchanted with communism. So the church became almost like the opposition party. So a lot of people went to the Catholic Church as a sign of their opposition, so not necessarily for religion. And that later had a spillover effect because when communism fell, they were unable to mentally unwind themselves. I mean, literally, on some level, the Catholic Church called in a debt and so Poland never separated church from state because John Paul II until today until today because John Paul II was so in 
incredibly powerful. And I hadn't had it from a different way because my dad's family was devoutly Catholic. My mom's family was not. In fact, my grandfather was a socialist. He was not a communist, but he was a socialist. And so, you know, I just remember the arguing at the table. But like Marta said, the communists were really somewhere out there, so to speak. It, It was, you know, like the echelons of power. Um, so even my socialist grandfather, every now and again, went, well, I don't think so. But the Catholic Church was the opposition. It was, like Marta said, it wasn't at all in any way, shape or form uh, hidden. The Berlin Wall was originally built partly to stop the brain drain from East Germany to the West. And from there, it became increasingly difficult for people from any East European country to travel overseas. But of course, there are always exceptions. The Middle East offered a destination where East Europeans could go to a politically neutral area in terms of the East versus West dynamic and earn large wages, a portion of which would be passed back on to the government back home. Kajik and Marta's parents were among those who were chosen to go and work in the Middle East. But that's where Tony Wood comes back into the story. An Englishman living in Bishop Stortford, he'd worked as a software engineer on ATM machines in the Middle East during the 1980s. In 1990, his employer, NCR, sent him back to the Middle East to introduce bankers there to some new technology. Whilst I was there, I met up with some old friends. We went to the Catholic church, which was in a village called Ahmadi, and we would play bridge. You've got to understand the backdrop to this was a typical Kuwaiti summer. The temperature was, you know, well into the 30s. But... Because it was during that very hot period, typically a lot of expatriate families would return home to meet up with relatives and things like that. The schools would be closed. The other professionals would continue to work. Kajik and Marta were among the kids who went home that summer to find their home country, Poland, undergoing rapid changes as it broke free from communism. That became very, very interesting because, for example, for my mom's family, and they were not at all communists, but the way the democratic solidarity catered to John Paul II and to the Roman Catholic Church was just appalling to them. That was the first time when we had the abortion debate because Poland had a very liberal abortion law. And then the Catholics were desperately trying to get it overturned. They succeeded once. I mean, it was a famous line when they voted except for certain restrictions. And the member of parliament said, we just made a beautiful birthday present to His Holiness the Pope. And I remember my mom and my nana gasping. Poland changed. It changed drastically. Massive change to the country. Color reappeared. Communism, you have no idea how to do. Yeah. It was dull. Gray. It was very gray. It was very, because yeah. everything, yeah. it was short of everything. We used to joke that, you know, if you instituted communism in the Sahara, within two weeks you started importing sand. You know, suddenly there was, you yeah. know, stores were colorful. Clothes were colorful. Clothes were, exactly, yeah. And it was this drastic change after, you know, 10 months of not being there. You see the country, like, literally accelerating, you know, economically. And, and like, like Kajik was saying, like, you know, colors brightening up, things being in stores. Back in Kuwait, the 2nd of August, 1990, started as just another ordinary day for Tony Woods and the Polish friends and colleagues he knew through the Catholic Church. During the course of driving into town, then we could see there were enormous traffic jams, more than normal. Somebody had pointed out to me, that my tire had deflated. Luckily, I had the tools to change and put the spare one on. 
just before I got into the car, I could hear like automatic fire. Not entirely unusual in Kuwait. The royal family, or in particular the Emir, had had several attempts on his life over previous years. I wouldn't say we took it with a pinch of salt, but I could. it's the first time I'd actually heard automatic gunfire. As we got closer to one of the ring roads, I saw one of these armoured reconnaissance vehicles with Kuwaiti pennants. That was a little bit unusual. Eventually, I got to the office block, went to the lift. When I got to the top, the doors opened. And then there was a flood of people coming the other way. They sort of said to me, didn't I realise that the Iraqis had invaded? And that was really the first that I was aware of anything. The world's fourth largest army had been sabre-rattling for months. And today was the day a certain Iraqi tyrant became a household name. Iraq has violated and taken over the territory of a country which is a full member of the United Nations. That is totally unacceptable. And if it were allowed to endure, then there would be many other small countries that could never feel safe. A good friend of ours who wasn't there, I had his telephone number, so he just rang out. So I left a sort of a, a voicemail message for him. I looked out of the windows, but I could see big plumes of smoke. And in the background were the Q80 towers, the very famous one. I just packed my bags, got into the car, and I drove back to the hotel. And I was waiting for my friend, Yurik Wonchinski, to give me a call. Eventually, he did get in touch with me, and he suggested that I go around to his apartment, which was well outside of the, the main city centre. He suggested that I, I stay at his place. The Kuwaiti television was off air. Most of the information we got was from the CNN. I thought that I would go back to the hotel to collect my suitcase. I drove to Masila Beach Hotel, which is probably only about 15 or 20 minutes drive away. The hotel had been requisitioned by the Iraqi military. I just asked uh, for my hotel key, picked up my bag, and as I was coming out, an Iraqi warrant officer. Ah, good morning, my good sir offered to carry my suitcase to the car. His English was excellent and, and he, he was quite a cheerful chap and he said that he'd been a, a taxi driver in Wood Green in North London. So <laughs> I thought, well, I was in good company. After that surprisingly warm encounter, he returned to the relative safety of his friend's apartment. One of the problems that started to evolve, water, because it's all pumped up into water tanks on the roof of the apartment blocks. They don't have a mains water supply. Eventually, the drivers realised they had an expensive commodity, so the price of water went up. But uh, we needed drinking water, and so we started to pull what local currency we had to go to the local shops, and I was quite surprised. So this is the day after we went to buy some, I suppose you'd say groceries, the essentials, but it was like the place had been run, so everybody had had this idea long before we did. And, uh, anyway, we were able to buy bottles of, you know, fresh water and a few things to eat. Anyway, so this went on for quite a few days. During this uh, period, 
the UN passed its resolution, and that, of course, was when British and American citizens became persona non grata. We were aware of individuals being taken to some of the other hotels, and we were told that British and American nationals had to check in. I decided not to do that. At that time, Poland was going through its um, solidarity, but it was still very much a sort of a, a socialist state. The Iraqis considered the Poles to be neutral. Iraq was already using a lot of Polish companies to help civil engineering projects throughout Iraq. So I felt perfectly comfortable staying with these guys, but it was getting a lot more serious. We weren't sure about what was going to be happening. There were a lot of Brits who were still working out there, expats who did eventually end up in Baghdad. We'd even looked for suitable hidey holes inside the apartment, which there were, you know, in the void between the ceiling and the concrete floor of the apartment above. Um, this apartment block was well outside of Kuwait City. And yes, some people may have been arrested, possibly fancying their chances driving over to Saudi Arabia. We just kept very low profile. My friends, they did all the shopping from that point on. It seemed like months actually, but it wasn't really. It was just a matter of weeks before the the local Polish embassy staff to evacuate all their civilians. This was to be done using convoys of coaches, which would drive across the border into Iraq and then to Jordan, and then they would fly to Warsaw from there. They offered me the opportunity to go out with them, but clearly not with a British passport. They kindly were able to arrange for a thing called a consular passport. I assumed a new identity, a Polish identity. I did actually have spare passport-sized photographs, which I carried in my wallet anyway, I always did. They hired the coaches from a Baghdad-based coach company, driven by Iraqis. They would pick up the civilians and then go through the border between Kuwait and Baghdad and then on to a place called Ramadi, which is on the main Mm -hmm. highway between Baghdad and Jordan. Anyway, the first couple of convoys went all right. I was on the third and last, and that was quite a scary thing because you were taking the main route out of Kuwait. On the highway, you could see just tons of Iraqi armored personnel carriers in particular, obviously having big mechanical problems. I think most of these vehicles were from the Warsaw Pact countries, okay, so probably not made to Western standards. But the traffic was very slow. And when we got to the border, what would happen is that the main representative on the coach would then take all the paperwork, the identity papers, present them to an officer at the immigration desk and uh, he would stamp them, but sometimes do random walks through the coaches. Luckily that didn't happen. I was just thinking that perhaps it'd be just my luck for an Iraqi officer to have had some training in Poland, able to speak a few words and then try and strike up a conversation with me in Polish. I was thinking, like in the Great Escape movie, the Scottish guy gets caught when the German guy says to him, oh, good luck. Good luck. That's exactly what I was a bit concerned about. Long before this, I had plenty of time to think about this, and believe me, I mean, I, I really thought what I wanted was one of the doctors to give me some knockout drops or something so I could be... (laughs) 
unconscious and then I wouldn't have to answer any questions. So, but no, they said it was too dangerous, you know, because of this, that and the other. And yes, I did learn a few phrases. I was able to do that. Actually, what I should also explain is that my wife, Judy, is half Polish herself. So we had a connection already with Poland. We'd already visited her extended family. Anyway, so we got through this sort of checkpoint, Charlie. We were in Iraq, uh, heading towards Baghdad initially. And then eventually the coach took a left turn down to this um, massive construction base, but also like an oasis town called Ramadi. Uh, it was probably getting on. I think it was quite dark at that point. So we were offered rooms, but it wasn't long before we were told to get back into the coaches. There was a little bit of a wait because this time the Iraqi coaches would be substituted with Jordanian-based buses, which had come the other way with Jordanian drivers. We pressed along on this, uh, this highway and eventually we got to this neutral zone between Iraq and Jordan. It was quite a serious bit of fencing. You couldn't climb over it. It was quite well controlled. It wasn't like you could just wander across and get into this area. And the sun was starting to set. I, I remember that very distinctly. After having got into Jordan, that very night, the border, they'd shut it totally. So no expats, whether they be Egyptian, Filipinos or whatever, were able to get out. Wow. So we were very lucky in the timing of that. The coaches then took us to a hotel near the international airport near Amman. It was the first time I had a proper bath. You know, it'd been a few weeks because of the shortage of water. We were all a little bit high, as you can imagine. Right, sure. Uh, so, had a good bath. The next stage of our journey, I think we were there for about 24 to 36 hours. The Polish government had chartered one of the lots airline aircraft. I realized that the consular passport would have to be surrendered at the hotel. I asked them just to do a couple of photocopies for me. So I kept those as a souvenir and I still have those. <laughs> I'm glad to say, just in case I need them sometime. Do you remember what your Polish pseudonym was? Yeah, it was Henrik Bulak. Yeah, I don't think I'm pronouncing it correctly, but uh, when we arrived at the airport in Warsaw, there was at least one other Brits. We were met by uh, consular staff. They just greeted us, but told us to go and have a good night's sleep and that they'd want to have a chat with us. I was feeling quite relieved at that point. Of course, I didn't have any British uh, travel documents. So the next thing is I needed to get that sorted out. And, and they asked us to stay in Poland for a, a week or two because they didn't want to have our return associated with that convoy just in case it got the Polish authorities into trouble with the Iraqis. Judy flew over and met me. We stayed in the hotel for a week or so. Then some other friends offered us the opportunity to stay in an apartment. That was great. And then we waited. So in September, I finally returned to the UK. Tony's daredevil escape with his false identity meant he avoided the fate of 800 other foreigners who were held as human shields by Saddam Hussein in Iraq while the occupation of Kuwait continued. But Tony's James Bond-like adventure is only the beginning of this strange story which continues next week. In the next episode, the Gulf War 
comes to Leafy, Bishop Stortford. Well, stone the flaming crows. It's time for Dan to do the Harry. Watch out for the next podcast and follow Dan's activities at www.danielmainwaring.com.